Hi, everybody. For our Scientist of the Week, today we have Dr. Stanky. Uh, good morning, Dr. Stanky. We're glad to have you on the show. Good morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to be there. And uh, so to begin off, uh, can you give the listeners a brief view of what DNA barcoding system is and how the one currently under development differs? Well, yeah, I should probably then, then define what a DNA barcode is or what it's yeah. supposed to be used for. Um, in case listeners haven't heard, listeners haven't heard of it, or probably heard some some news about it where it was used. So DNA barcodes are um, short pieces of DNA, so relatively short compared to how much DNA you can find in an in an organism's cell. We use these little snippets to um, distinguish species from each other. So that means that if I get um, some sort of a DNA sample of an organism, I I'm able using this method to pinpoint which species it is, as long as I have it somewhere in a in a reference library of DNA barcodes. So that's the that's the main concept of barcoding. It's around since early 2000s. So, so fairly new. Sorry. So it's uh, fairly new. It's fairly new. Yeah. If if you look in in, in long term scientific ter um, times, then you probably would say it's still fairly new. Probably 17, 18 years ago the concept was built and then everything revolved around building this reference library because you, you, you can get DNA relatively simply nowadays from an organism and then you sequence that little piece of it which we're talking about and calling DNA barcode but the problem is you have to match it to something so you have to build a huge database of everything that is on earth and to be honest we, we we don't even have an agreement how many species we share the planet with yeah. so it's a bigger endeavor and at this point probably have about oh, I'd say 1.5 million species sequenced probably a little something revolving, revolving around that one uncertainty comes from exactly what I just said we don't know everything that's around us so now we're fishing in the dark and trying to see if we discover a new DNA sequence that doesn't match anything else in the database and we have to go through the lengths of seeing and verifying that it's actually really a new species that we have just not registered yet as scientists, and so DNA barcoding in a nutshell. Okay, and how long has the university been uh, working on this project? Well, actually, from the beginning, because the idea of DNA barcoding was actually comes from the University of Guelph. Oh. Um, so my boss, Paul Hebert, was the one who developed it. He had the idea. He coined the name. So in the early 2000s, he was the one going around telling people that should be probably our way going forward. If we really want to, number one, catalog everything that's on Earth fairly quickly mm -hmm. and have alternatives to identify certain species in, in different contexts. Um, and then people ran with it. And today we see a lot of uses of DNA barcodes that we never thought about when we started with everything. Um, I think the most famous uses were usually when you saw in the news that people were trying to get fish from sushi places or retailers or whatever, and then were told by scientists, it's actually not what they claim it is. It's something else. It's a cheap substitute you're buying there. Um, and for that, we use DNA barcodes. Okay. So there is a bit of public uh, setting usage for it. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. There is this, and there's there's all sorts of things that that came bubbling up over the years. There's it's used a lot of times now in, in border control. So especially when you're trying to track for CITES listed species, so they're banned from trade, and people trying to import them anyway. So um, our agencies, federal and provincial, to intercept um, shipments at the border, and sometimes materials are not necessarily. In, in a shape that you could pinpoint say directly, this is the species or that. So then we could get a sample to help them identifying what it is um, so that they can make court case or whatever, or more famously or more recently when before Canada a year ago, or so banned shark finning. Oh. It was the method actually to give people an idea of the extent and uh, the species involved in in that trade because it's it's pretty widely spread and there's a lot of sharks that are killed for that per particular purpose yeah. but um what you end up when you confiscate a shipment or uh, a shipload is a pile of shark fins and it's hard to tell which species they belong to but we were able to actually use that kind of method oh that, that's and, great and yeah. give them a better idea of how many protected species are actually within the catch yeah for sure and uh, what is your particular role in the research project? Um, what's my particular role? Well, I'm, first and foremost, I'm a researcher in, well, what I'm doing right now is something that's sort of an addition, and that probably refers to what you said at the beginning um, of the interview, say, what is the new thing there? Mm -hmm. um, my current research revolves a lot around an extension of the method of barcoding, because at the beginning we would just we were extracting DNA from a single organism or several organisms and then go down the route in sequencing the DNA. Mm -hmm. And that's one organism, one set of DNA, and the machinery allowed us to do, if we wanted to, um, parallel up to 95, 96 of them. Mm -hmm. That's what the sequences um, allowed us to do, and that took probably a couple, a couple of hours and a couple of days before in the preparation. However, I'd say 10 years ago, it really started to fly further and then we were able to use it and it became affordable. It's something that's called next generation sequencing. Mm High -hmm. throughput sequencing is another word for it, where you can start doing these kinds of reactions massively in parallel. So you're not generating 95, 96 sequences at a time. You can generate millions of them, which meant our initial efforts were already pretty advanced and saying, okay, we can produce so and so many barcodes a year to build this huge reference library. But now all of a sudden that is 10, a hundred fold faster because this new tech is, allows us to do that. But on the other hand, it also allows us to do something we hadn't done before. So imagine you have built a reference library for a certain area. And I give you an example out of my work, Ontario or Southern Ontario should be more precise. And you look at all the different insect species or arthropod species that occur in our landscape. So mostly the terrestrial um, animals. And I'm very interested in also in, in the ones that are associated with farmland, mm -hmm. live in and around it. So now the normal way of trying to find out who lives there would be you have to sort of collect them all. Mm -hmm. If you're modern, then you would use barcoding to identify them one by one by one. Um, in the olden, olden days, you would have to look through books and um, through keys to, to identify every species. What we can do now is using this newer um, approach to barcoding, which we call meta-barcoding. We take a sample of them all, and you can, you can have several traps out there, and you collect a weekly sample, which is essentially a pile of insects you're looking at. 
You can dry that, you can grind it, and you have a pile of powder of all these organisms in there. And then you can take that and sample out of that and sequence with the newer technology everything that's in there. So you get a huge mix of different organisms' DNA, and then you try to fish out your barcode fragments again. And that's what we essentially do in meta barcoding. So now I can start using a library of what I know, monitoring over time, and probably monitoring in areas where I can see there might be changes because due to land use, we're talking climate change, we're talking all these different things. Because now I take samples out there, run them with that single method, match it to what I have in the database, and I can quickly discover if there's any changes in the community composition. Oh, that, that's great. Yep. And wow. And so it's quite interesting how far you've come. So from doing both your master's and PhD all the way in Germany and then coming here to the University of Guelph. So what was the story behind you getting involved with the University of Guelph after getting your PhD in, in um actually it was during during my PhD. So we had we got wind of the barcoding thing from early papers around that time from Paul Hebea and we were looking into, okay, can we use that for what we were doing at that point? And I was working with a colleague in Germany, which was a little outside my PhD work, but it still fitted in somehow. Um, he's an amphibian guy, so he was interested in doing DNA studies with these amphibians. And then we developed software at that time, really good. Today, nobody would actually care about it. it we got much better, but um, to use barcodes and, and to identify them out of unknown data sets and all that. Um, I took that software mm -hmm. and a description of it and went to the very first international barcoding conference that actually happened to be in London, England. Oh. So that was sort of a hop for me from Germany. So that was fairly easy. So I met all these guys that came out of Guelph and everywhere else that was sort of at the forefront of it. And I met Paul Hebert and then we started discussing things while I was still doing my PhD. We were talking on and off um, about a potential to come here to Guelph to do a postdoc. And yeah, I finished um, a few months later. I actually sat on the plane um, coming to Guelph starting a postdoc here and I've been in Guelph ever since morphing from a postdoc all the way into the into being graduate faculty but still um, everything so I, I could say I'm, I'm part of this barcode enterprise from from pretty early days yeah almost right, right from the beginning yeah. and uh, so uh, what have you? What have been like some highlights of studying and researching in different countries? And were there any challenges that, that you faced? <laughs> it will highlights a lot. Well, I got around for research quite a bit, and that, that's always exciting and exhilarating because you, you get to see a little bit more, not only of of the nature you you actually do you conduct your research in, but also of the culture and everything around you. So. Um, I know Germans, Germans are worldwide known for being very avid travelers, and I probably have a little bit of that in me too. So that sort of fits the bill there very quickly. So um, there were a lot of highlights. Certainly one of them was, was being able to um, go to Costa Rica um, to, to one of our, I'd say one of the ecology heroes there is for the past, I don't know how many decades, Daniel Jensen. He's one of the biggies in, in ecology and he has 
um, managed within 30, 40 years to um, build a protected area in the north of the country that is unprecedented. And it's really, it's, he buys land from former landowners, agricultural use or what have you, and then rebuilds it and re restores it. So it's a huge area, um, the ACG. And I had the chance to go there, which was really spectacular and being in the, this ground zero for ecological re restoration. So everybody knows him from the textbooks and having the ability to work with him for now for over 10 years is, is pretty honor. And um, these kinds of highlights are really great. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, we, what advice would you give to students that want to conduct research out of like their hometown or out of the country, but might be hesitant to leave their comfort zone? Well, you have a chance using these kinds of research. Number one, if you're really hesitant, you don't want to leave um, your country or you, you're quite content in the area you are, that's not a problem per se. You can still conduct the research because there is a lot. What we've seen here over the years is we don't have to go to all these places. And actually, it would be a logistical and financial nightmare if we would have to do all the sampling um, in the past years that was done because most of our samples actually come from collaborators, from friends, from people all over the place um, that get the proper permission and everything else. And then they share samples at a certain stage with you. And even if it's just, I say just, it should be just, but if it's data. Mm -hmm. So you can still do something with that. And you don't have to leave your house or um, in that case, your lab in order to, to do all that kind of research. All you need is good contacts with somebody somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then data is shared and work is shared. And today with all the communication means there's no, there's no barrier to that if you really don't want to do. And quite honestly, Traveling won't get easier in the next couple of years simply because of all that pandemic and yeah. the consequences of it. And even if it's just money that mm -hmm. will make flights and everything much more expensive. And probably we're also thinking about um, something like a carbon footprint. Oh, so we have to really probably reduce it. But there's ways around it. And I think because we operate global enough also, in, especially in research, that we can actually do that. Oh, for sure. For sure. Especially just technology is making things so much easier now as we advance. Absolutely, yeah. And now, uh, outside of your professional career, do you still have a passion for breeding ornamental fish at home? Uh, yeah, not right now. That's just a matter of having the time to do that. I used to do that as a kid and then later on as a kid with my father and later on if I had time. Um, it's on the list for potential retirement activities because, uh, and I could probably spend the time I should um, on that. So you have to be, if you really want to do it right, mm -hmm. you have to care a lot about it and, and spend some efforts on um, how to do it right. So that's, yeah, that fell by the wayside and then the job, family, kids and everything else was more, we had fish. Yes, that's mm -hmm. not a problem, but really breeding them, no. Okay. Well, not, but I, I'm pretty sure once I retire and have a bit more time, that's one of the things I, I'd love to do. All right. But uh, thank you for joining us today for the Scientist of the Week. And it was a pleasure having you. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.